I can't believe that is 20 years old. That was the opening for Toy Story so many years ago. And I love that scene because it shows how many of us feel that there are circumstances many times where all the pieces have been taken away and you feel like you're backed into a corner. And like every great piece of literature, our hero is up in a tree and there's no way to escape. And yet in that scene, like every good movie and every good piece of literature, somehow everything gets turned around. Everything gets reversed. The smug bad guy suddenly is defeated. And our hero, who seemed like there was no way to win, suddenly has a smile on their face. Today we're going to find in our conclusion to our coincidental series that it seems like Esther and Mordecai have no pieces left. It seems like Haman with his smug, uh, controlling tendencies has taken over the world and there is no way to escape. And yet we're going to find an unbelievable turn of events where the whole board gets literally turned upside down in just one 24-hour period of time. And we're going to ask the question, could God reverse the challenges in your life? Is it possible that all the pieces we have, even when we don't see the plan or understand the plan, we could hold on that there is a plan regardless of the pieces we have left? Let's listen to the song together and feel the emotions of what it feels like when you're in that position that Mordecai and Esther are in, just like Jerry was in Jerry's game. It's amazing there's certain pieces in all of our lives that we wish we could change. Certain pieces in our past we wish hadn't happened or had happened differently. As I confessed a few weeks ago, I was once in the chess club, and I was an average to above average chess player. I could get you in check if I had my rooks, maybe if I had my bishop, certainly if I had my queen. But the real grandmasters have ability to use any piece. I mean, they can get you in check by using just a pawn and a a, a king and get you in check. And what we're going to find is that as we come to this concluding chapter here in the book of Esther, we're going to find that God can use everything, every piece, every circumstance, every situation, every chapter in your life can be part of the orchestration of a master plan. Now, that may be hard to believe. You're not even sure if God really gets involved today, let alone he can use everything in your life. As a Christian, believing God could use everything doesn't mean that everything was good. Betrayal and adultery, it's never good. Cancer. Being a Christian doesn't believe you go, well, I really, it turns out I enjoy cancer. Divorce, death, none of these things are inherently good. And so believing that God can use everything doesn't mean that everything is good. But what if, even if you don't buy it, what if you could believe, what if there's a possibility of believing that whether the pieces were good or bad in your life, that there could be a way in which they could be used for a higher purpose? I mean, isn't what frustrates us about evil and suffering that it's meaningless suffering? What if suffering and difficulty, the pieces in your life, could be used for meaning and purpose? And what if anything and everything could actually be reversed and turned around? In this life, or if not, confidence it could happen in the next. Wouldn't you at least want to investigate the possibility of that? It's a great children's book I read years ago called... 
that's good. No, that's bad. A little boy comes and he, he finds a gigantic balloon, helium balloon, and he grabs it. They say, little boy found a red balloon. Well, that's good. No, that's bad. That balloon has so much helium in it, he begins to float up, up, up into the air, leaving the ground, and now he's 50 feet up in the air. <gasps> that's bad. No, that's good. Because from way up in the air, he can now see that he's floating over the zoo. He's getting a free view of the zoo. All the animals, all the cages, he can see it all. Well, that's good. No, that's bad. Because he let go of the string and he fell into the bamboo cage. <gasps> that's bad. No, that's good. Because one of the bamboos caught him and saved his life and invited him to come and climb on the vines with them. Oh, that's good. No, that's bad. One of the vines turned out to be a snake. And the story goes on and on and on and shows how even good and bad things can be used for an ultimate purpose. So what we're going to discover today is a principle I think we all want to be true, even if we're not sure if it is true. The Bible teaches and followers of Jesus do not believe everything happens for a reason meaning everything's inherently good, and if you just looked at it from the right angle, that divorce, that betrayal, that, that thing would be inherently good. No, there are things that are inherently bad. Everything doesn't happen for a reason, but God can use everything happening for a reason. In other words, every good gift comes from God, so not evil doesn't come from God, and so not everything has a reason. However, God can use everything happening for his reasons. He can take good and bad and use it to a greater purpose. And when he is silent and when he doesn't make sense and when it seems like you know, he has left the building, we're going to look at three false assumptions that keep us from having confidence. Because I want you to have confidence. Even if you're just going to tiptoe into that confidence to say, I want to at least investigate the possibility that God could use everything and God could reverse anything our first false assumption is one i know i struggle with a lot when i don't like the pieces on the board and the first assumption is this i assume that god's silence equals his absence esther's coming to her second dinner banquet all of her people there's an edict against them to kill them all the edict's been made by this man named haman who is trying to kill off all of the Jewish people, specifically a man by the name of Mordecai, who would not bow down before him. He has built a gallows, which is like a big spear that you basically would throw somebody's body upon. Mordecai has talked to his adopted daughter, Esther, who is now the queen, and said, you've got to petition. Today, tomorrow, we will die if you do not go and make petition for us. And so Esther has invited the king and... Haman to a dinner banquet they had one last night it didn't seem like the timing was quite right so she invites them back for a second one today and here she is with a guy who's trying to kill her and her family but doesn't know she's Hebrew a king who has a history of not liking women speaking up to him banished the last one and she's about to risk it all and how is God going to show up silence she doesn't get an angel she doesn't get a burning bush. She doesn't get a Red Sea crossing. And despite the silence, she refuses to assume that God's silence means his absence. And so she gets to the edge and she is about to risk her position. She's about to risk her 
comfortable lifestyle. She's about to risk her finances and everything for the sake of others. And look, nowhere does God seem to show up in the paragraph. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day, at the banquet of wine, the king says to Esther, All right, what's your petition, Queen Esther? To be granted you, what's your request? I've asked you three times now. Up to half the kingdom, it's going to be done. God's name's not mentioned in the book and certainly not mentioned in the paragraph. And yet she's still going to take the risk. Like for many of us, we struggle. You know, if God's so powerful, why does he get involved in life in general, let alone in my life? Why isn't he changing this or fixing this? I think that's a realistic struggle that we all need to wrestle with. Is silence equal to absence? Especially when you live in a world like ours that's all about parading, it's all about bragging. If you're doing something, you tell everybody, right? The king spent 180 days parading his power and parading his riches. We live in a kingdom that for, for a year they paraded the beauty of women before they had this beauty contest. We live in a, a kingdom where Haman has told anyone and everyone and paraded his riches, paraded his power, his fear, his gallows. He wants you to know he's in control. When you live in a world that's always about parading what you do, it's hard to understand a different type of king and a different type of kingdom. The king that's going to reverse circumstances today is so secure in his strategy, so secure in his ability, that he doesn't have to brag. He doesn't have to parade. When it looks like he's the only piece left on the board, he has positioned the strategy to bring about his purpose. And Esther is so confident in this silent, strategic, quiet, non-parading, non-braggadocious king that she is going to risk it all. Even when this king she serves is silent. If that's true, that she's willing to risk her life for other people, then I want to just suggest to you that if you're new to the even idea of thinking about God maybe getting involved in life, that you try and risk something. The first risk is what if you began to risk believing, just risk, just put your toe in the water and risk believing that you don't know everything. Well, that doesn't seem like a big risk. Well, I think it is, and here's why. When we worry, we're basically saying we worry because we know how it should go. We worry about the timing of events because we know how it should have happened. And when we see bad things in our life and we say nothing good can come of this, what we mean is I can't imagine anything good coming of this. And we begin to get angry at life or angry at God or bitter at, at, at circumstances. And I want to propose to you that it's because you put yourself in the place of God and you've assumed you know what's really happening in the silence. But what if you began to risk saying, God, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe a paragraph that seems like you're out of control, a chapter in my life that seems like you've left the building. I'm going to risk believing I don't know everything and you might, just might, be working where I can't see you. How would it change your perspective if you dared to do that? Let's relook at that chapter together and see if maybe we could risk believing we don't know that he's silent and gone, that he might be working. Look at, look at the circumstances. So the king and Haman come to dine with the queen. Oh my goodness, five years ago, God positioned the pieces so that this pawn would move to the end of the board and become a queen. 
God's silent, but he's worked through ordinary circumstances to position her. It's not just a queen. She's Queen Esther. The, the queen happens to not only be a woman, but happens to be a Jewish woman. God's put the pieces on the board. 24 hours ago, they had a dinner party and the timing wasn't quite right. But what happened in the last 24 hours? In the last 24 hours, the king couldn't sleep because he drank too much. And he read an account of seven years ago when a man named Mordecai saved his life because of an assassination attempt. And so in the last 24 hours, notice it says the king again said, again, because 24 hours ago, the position and pieces weren't quite right yet. The king suddenly realized, I never rewarded that guy. At the same time, 24 hours ago, Haman was building a gallows to kill this same guy. He is on his way to the king to ask the king to kill him before breakfast. The king is on his way to him to tell him to reward this man. And instead of coming to a breakfast meeting to kill Mordecai, he's instead told by the king to go and parade Mordecai. And within those 24 hours where there's no burning bush and there's no angels, it seems like coincidences are happening all around us that now we are at a dinner party with Haman and the king and the queen. And again, the king asks, again, the king asks, what is your petition? And now Esther feels the timing is right she risks that God, she doesn't know everything and God might be working in the background. And look at this king who graciously seems to be offering her something amazing, even in the midst of most difficult circumstances. I remember it was 2008. We had been looking for a property for about 10 years as a church. We had pieces that we'd, we'd looked at and weren't quite right and and many people in our church had been giving, hundreds of folks giving financially for one year, two year, three or four year pledges. And 2008 came and the economy crashed. And I remember being on a conference call with the exec board here at the church. We said, we feel like God has been working and, and we're supposed to build this building. But we're still really wrestling with how big to make the place. Because there was only about 70 people coming to our equipping service, 90 at best at, at Cincinnati Country Day School. And a good Sunday would be about 200 people coming to one service at our exploring service. These two services were 100% different. We said, well, if we build a, a, a room that holds 500, it's going to look very like, you know, well, weren't you real presumptuous on what God was going to do? If you make it too small, people would go, you fools, why didn't you plan better for the growth? And it was 2008, and no one in Cincinnati was building. And yet people continued to give toward this vision and we on this conference call one day, I remember praying as a team and saying, even though we don't see a burning bush, even though we don't see any like clear you know, angel in the sky, we feel like God is confirming that we need to take the risk to build a home. So in 2008, when prices were very, very low, because cash was in the bank, because people giving faithfully over two, three, and four years, we were in a negotiating place. We were able to build this building for, you know, 60, 50% of what it would have cost because no one was building. We provided jobs for folks here in Cincinnati. Fast forward six years, building prices have doubled or tripled. And so literally because of the difficult circumstances, but the faithfulness and trusting and the, the prayer of our staff and the prayer of our team to be able to say, we're going to trust that God's telling us to step out now, even though there's no clear sign. And not only did we have one service here, but quickly we went to two services and three services, now at four services. 
But I remember the feeling of saying, let's risk as a team. Let's risk, hopefully with lots of, with lots of uh, Excel sheets open, they were calculated risks, but that God was working in the planning. And here we are six years later, and now we're almost filled up. This service, was no room for anybody anymore. And we're looking at what are the other ways in which we can grow and expand. But it really came down to, in those moments of fear, and you remember how terrified everyone was in 2008, we were in the same way saying, how do we trust God in the midst of that? The second risk, I think, is believing that, that God's way, this other king's way, works even in someone else's kingdom. This is a kingdom that doesn't respect people. This is a, a king that uses people. This is a kingdom that's all about self-self. And yet you see Esther, when she's given a chance to speak, she speaks in a way this other kingdom talks about, honoring and loving, respecting even the disrespectable. She says, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor with the king, you say, well, that doesn't work today. That doesn't work in my office. That doesn't work in, in, in the type of business I'm in. She refuses to believe. She risks believing that her king's way can work even in a different type of kingdom. In a kingdom that's obsessed with self, she, for, she, she chooses to risk fighting for other people. And look how other-centered she is. She says, you know, had I been sold as a male or female slave, I wouldn't have bothered you with this. What? Though it would have come at the king's loss. But king, I'm looking out for me, but I'm also looking out for you. There's a great loss at stake here. By being so respectful in her conversation, she can make the issue the real issue and not herself the issue. She chooses this king's way even in the midst of a kingdom with a totally upside-down value system. What if you risked believing you don't know everything? And what if you risk believing that maybe the way of forgiveness, the way of other-centeredness, the upside-downness of thinking of other people and serving other people would work even in a kingdom or culture that doesn't celebrate it? And it's through this God will bring about a reversal. God will reverse circumstances because of what she's done. Which brings us to our second assumption. Our second assumption is that successful circumstances equal success. And man, we're all susceptible to this. And this is the belief that Haman has. Haman believes that he's got the power, he's got the might, he's got the promotion. He assumes that because he's gone up the corporate ladder and he's had successful circumstances, the money keeps going up, the position keeps going up, his situational power keeps going up. He assumes that because he's had successful circumstances, he's a successful person. Now, don't you know people like this? People who think they're successful spouses and dads, and you're watching because it's your sister-in-law, your brother-in-law, and you're like, ugh. You might make a lot of money. You might have a nice car. You might have a nice house. You're a lousy dad. Or you're, that's not a great mom. Or somebody who's been able to lead the team into a, to, to meet some quarterly numbers and meet some goals. And in that regard, they're good. But the way they've done it, there's just loss of morale, there's loss of trust. You've never felt more disconnected in the organization. And that person's blind to it because they think successful circumstances makes them successful. And you're saying, but can't you see the collateral damage around you? Haman thinks he's got away with it. There is no way anyone could stop him now. He's a success. And when you see bad people getting away with it, you think God has left the building. Or you see good people and bad things are happening to them, you think God has left the building. 
And God wants you to know that when you think successful circumstances equal success and you feel bad about yours, or you think successful circumstance means that you're doing fine when you're not living a life of character, God's going to show us that we can reap what we sow in due time. And God will elevate those who humble themselves, and God will take down those who elevate themselves improperly. And so Haman, who's as confident as ever that the world is, is his oyster, comes into this dinner meeting and hears this conversation. King Harazeres answered and said to the Queen Esther, Who is he who would come against my queen? And look at the phrase. Where is he and who would dare presume? What kind of an idiot, what kind of a moron would in my kingdom dare to kill off an entire people and not even check to see if my wife was one of them? How could he be so blind? How could he be so stupid? Whoever this person is, and the king hasn't connected the dots yet, how could he have presumed to do this? And how many of us know folks who are making such bad financial decisions or relational decisions or business decisions, and the whole time you're watching from like two steps away like, "Mm, that's not going to work out. (laughs) That's not going to end well. That's not a good idea. But the whole time they presume because it's gone well and they've had success to this point, it's going to continue to be successful. And now God is going to spin the table. And Esther said, The enemy is this wicked Haman. And Haman, who one second ago was on top of the world, is like, The queen is a Jew. I've just, oh no, how did... And then she then goes and says, And my cousin is... Mordecai. (gasps) And for the first time in a long time, Haman was terrified before the king. And the king arose, storms out in his wrath, seemingly to either figure out what he's going to do or grab some extra guards. And as the king arose, God uses these circumstances. and And Haman one more time tries to get control. He sees the king's angry. He sees he's probably going to lose his life. And so he quickly... Stands before the queen, who's apparently on a couch. He, he, as he's left the building, he throws himself at her and says, Please, 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 save my life. Please, 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 I've got a family. Please, please. Please save my life. Please, 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 please. And in that moment, as he's pleading for his life, he falls onto the couch, begging her for his life. And it's at that very moment, the king comes back in the building. How dare you attack my wife when I am still in the house, he says. And the king said, will you assault the queen while I'm in the house? And at that very moment, as the king was talking, the guards came in and put a black bag over his head. And at that very moment, happens to be a servant named Harbona. One of the eunuchs of the king came in and said, hey, you know what, I was just... uh Walking through uh, Haman's front yard, and I noticed he's built a gallows, 50 foot tall, 50 cubits, 75 foot tall, that he wants to hang Mordecai on. King, isn't that the guy you just found out saved your life last night? And here's my point. I don't know if it'll happen on this side of heaven or the next, but when you feel like you are low... Twenty minutes ago, Mordecai felt like there's no way out. Bad things happen to good people. 
20 minutes ago, two minutes ago, Haman felt like I've gotten away with it. And in one period of time, God used the last five years to turn everything upside down. And God says, when you don't understand what's going on, trust that the principle of reap what you sow in due time can reverse circumstances even when you don't see what I'm doing. Haman thought his success and his circumstances meant he was successful. I read a commencement, story of a commencement by the guy who wrote the book Liar's Club in 2012 to Princeton University. He describes this in all of us, that the more successful we get, the more we have a tendency to not think about any greater plan, any greater strategy. We start thinking that we really made ourselves where we are, and that creates the blind spot that we all have. He says, one night I was invited to a dinner where I sat next to the wife of a big shot of a big Wall Street investment bank, the Solomon Brothers. She more or less forced her husband to give me a job. Solomon Brothers happened to be where Wall Street was being reinvented into the Wall Street we've come to know and love today. When I got there, I was assigned almost arbitrarily to the very best job in the place to observe the growing madness. And they turned me into the house derivatives expert. All of a sudden, people were telling me that I was a born writer. But that was absurd. Even I could see that there was another, more true narrative with luck as its theme. What were the odds of being seated at that dinner next to that Salmon Brothers lady? Of landing inside the best Wall Street firm to write the story of the age? Of landing in the seat with the best view of the business? As we successful people age and succeed, people feel our success has somehow been inevitable. We call this hindsight bias, which means the more successful we are, the more we said it was inevitable in light of my hard work. Not remembering that it was being at the right place at the right time. And whether you call it God or coincidence or luck or grander plan, that there had to be more at work than just me. This research was built off what a psychologist said, Cornell psychologist Tom Gilovich. He said, according to Pew Research, people in higher income brackets are much more likely than those with lower income brackets to say that individuals get rich primarily because they work hard, not luck. Wealthy people overwhelmingly attribute their success to hard work, which is certainly true, rather than to factors like being in the right place at the right time. And yet a growing body of evidence suggests that seeing ourselves as self-made rather than as talented, hardworking, and lucky. So you don't get rid of the talent, you don't get rid of the hard work, but there's this other sense that it wasn't just me that did this. Leads us to be less generous and public-spirited if you did it all rather than something else helping out. And that's where Haman found himself. I did this. I deserve this. There was no coincidence. There was no plan. There's no, nothing that could stop me or beat me or something else I don't know about. Reminds me of the words of William Temple. He says, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. So whether you call it coincidence or God, I love that idea that I'm going to work hard, I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to pray and ask that God, if he does get involved today, would you bring some coincidences into my life? Wester well, does that. She's so convinced that she's been positioned on purpose. She's not just there to save her own life, but the lives of others. She is going to be 
publicly spirited to help other people out, which brings us to our last assumption. Our last assumption when you go through silence or difficulty is we think that unchangeable circumstances that we can't control, that are beyond our ability to influence, are irreversible. And who wouldn't? I mean, that's just like common sense. They're unchangeable, therefore they're irreversible. But God is going to show that even unchangeable circumstances can be reversed by a master grand master strategist. So Esther spoke again to the king. Her life is saved now. She could be like, whew, Mordecai saved, I'm saved. Sure, I got relatives living in like, you know, other providences. I haven't seen them in a while, quite frankly. Family unions are kind of, yeah, we could probably do without them. She is now petitioning her life, risking her life again to talk to the king for the sake of others. Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite. Remember, he's made an edict. Even though he's dying, his edict to kill all the Jewish people and to plunder them is still out there. And the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. She says, please, king, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. And what she's going to find out is in Persian law, unlike our law system, once a king made a law, it could not be changed. These were unchangeable circumstances under Persian law. He couldn't revoke it. And therefore, it's a good assumption to say in unchangeable circumstances stamped by the king's ring meant it was irreversible. And she begs him, she says, how can I endure in a world where we allowed all of my family to die? To see the evil that's going to come to my people. How can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? And one of the reasons we as a church are committed to working to help others here, the city gospel mission, locally with Happy Church, sending people on experiences with back-to-back or with our, our belief partners who just got back, is because we think something happens, that, that when, when you've been brought to a certain place of success, that you have a responsibility to give back and to help others and to speak out. How can we endure in a world where other people don't have medical care? How can we endure in a world where other people are, are, are in poverty, generational poverty? We, like Esther, need to say those look like unchangeable circumstances, but God might use us to be part of reversing that. We've got to step in. We've got to be involved. Even our beliefs team this week got back. And besides all the other incredible things they did, they brought back the story of Roberto. You remember he was here with his mom last year and the story of a life that literally has been saved by our teams. Another step in that process this year in helping a boy who needed surgery, couldn't eat, got spinal issues, and our teams and our volunteers went down and said, I want to help. We want to be part of reversing a seemingly unchangeable circumstance. And here's the principle. God says, when, when you assume that unchangeable circumstances are irreversible, I want you to know this. Your greatest tragedy can be your greatest triumph. Your greatest tragedy, not doesn't mean it was good, it was a tragedy, can be your greatest triumph. To which you're like, nice bumper sticker, sure, yeah, what you had. You're not going through what I'm going through. Yeah, I'm sure that looks good up on the screen. Yeah, not in real life. I can't explain it. I can just tell you, as you walk through our congregation, you can hear real stories of folks who've said, it was tragic and it didn't get less tragic. But my greatest tragedy became my greatest triumph as I began to believe in a God who can use anything and everything for his purposes. 
I'll just give you a few. I was talking to my friend Lori Hollywood, and she said after years of suffering from, from rheumatoid arthritis and just all the surgeries and all the frustrations and all the medicine, she got even worse news to find out that she had melanoma and cancer, the thing she feared the most. And yet over Christmas, she called me and said, hey, i got to tell you what happened. Because of the, the cancer, I had to stop my medicine for, for RA, which told me that was going to get worse. And now i got cancer, plus i got these conditions getting worse. And because of the cancer, which I feared the most, we got that taken care of. I was feeling better. And the doctors told me to go back on my RA medicine. And, and they said, well, I'm feeling great. I don't want to go back on the medicine. They said, well, let's check you out. And he began to check and look and feel. And he said, I can't believe this. This is a debilitating, incurable condition. And it looks like you're a Christmas miracle. He said, well, I'm a person of faith. I've been praying about this. And God's been wrestling with this. But God used cancer greatest fear and tragedy to bring about health in incurable disease. And the doctor said, well, I can't explain it scientifically. I'm just going to tell you this. You are a Christmas miracle. Talked to a friend about a month ago. He said, you know, my divorce is one of the most horrible things that ever happened to me. I wouldn't want divorce to happen to anybody. The person who knows you best stands up in open court and says, I never want to see you again. He said, but I'll tell you this. It was that divorce that forced me to look in the mirror at some habits I had that I had rationalized away for the last 10 years. I didn't think I needed God. I was basically a good guy, just my wife was the problem. But it was that divorce that forced me to seek out God in a way I never would have had it not been for that. It was that divorce that forced me to look in the mirror, and I am becoming a better person because God used those circumstances to grow me, to change me, and to open my eyes to things I wouldn't have seen otherwise. I'll give you a historic example. This time in history we're studying here in the book of Esther. If you know any people who are Jewish, you know they celebrate the Feast of Purim every year. You may not know what even though that is. The Feast of Purim, celebrated by Jews all over the world for, for thousands of years, began in this story. The story of tragedy, of a genocide, is now a time every year that Jewish people, and we did it during our Jesus, Jesus, Jewish Jesus series about 18 months ago, Dress up, like think of it like Halloween and Thanksgiving mixed together for us. You dress up like Mordecai, you dress up like Esther. And you gather together, and in this feast, a literal feast, is a reminder of celebration that God could use a tragedy like genocide to reverse everything to become a festival. In fact, they have a reading every year of the book of Esther in Jewish congregations that's a lot like Reader's Theater. They read through the story, and every time you hear Esther's name, and then Esther, yay, everybody cheers. And then Mordecai, boo! And in readers' theater format, they come back and they retell the story of how God can turn tragedy into victory. The greatest tragedy can be your triumph. I was just thinking through my journal. uh, Last year I was doing a lot of complaining on stage because we just had circumstance after circumstance was, was coming at us with a lot of ramifications for my son's autism involving remodeling anything and everything to keep him alive and the stress of that. My older son last year about this time was in a car wreck and almost died. And just the stress on us, the stress on our marriage, the stress on our home. And I'll tell you, 12 months later, I still don't think any of that happened for a reason. I don't think any of that was like, wow, I'd love another chapter of that. (laughs) But I am convinced that God used everything happening for his reasons. And my confidence in God... And what he can do in our marriage, what he can do in our family, what he can do in my life has continued to grow 
because God can use anything and everything for his purposes. We began this series with an interview with my friend Brenda, who talked about an incredibly difficult time, if you want to get the CD of it, that she went through. And after telling all these horrible stories, she goes, and I can sum up everything that's happened in one word. I remember I got the script from her, the email one day, and I thought, I wonder what the word's going to be. It's probably four-letter words, four letters, I mean, four-letter word. And she says, Blessing. How God used tragedy for her to meet God, to meet people, to grow her life, to find freedom. Wouldn't you at least want to investigate the possibility that your greatest tragedy could be your greatest triumph in his time? See, everything doesn't happen for a reason, but God can use anything and everything for his reason. So let me end with this. Let me give you just four real practical steps that I have been using now for 20 years when I'm going through a time of silence or difficulty. Four things I remind myself. Number one, don't curse it. Cursing circumstances or cursing God. There's a temptation to do that, and I'm telling you, everyone I know ends up bitter. So I tell myself, don't curse it. It seems bad, it is bad, but don't curse it. God could still use it. Number two, don't rehearse it. When I get worried, when I get anxious, I rehearse it over and over and over and over again. Oh, then that's going to happen. That's, that's, oh, my goodness. And my mind is just racing with my imagination eating away at me. And I have to catch myself when I say, there's no way this could happen. This shouldn't have happened this way. There's no way this could work out. And instead begin to rehearse, God can use anything and everything. It keeps me from worry. Three, don't nurse it. Nurse it is when you begin to allow your mind to delve in self-pity. You nurse it. Poor me. I shouldn't have to go through with this. And now, I'm not trying to minimize your circumstance. What I'm telling you is that level of self-pity will not bring you hope or help. Everyone I know who's ended up in a financial disaster in, in, their, in their company, they went, the company doesn't treat me right. I should have got that promotion. And they start compromising on finances. They start sort of taking the money the company wouldn't give them. I'm telling you, self-pity will set you up to make horrible decisions. Almost every affair, you can trace it back to someone at some point said, I don't have to put up with this. I'm not appreciated around here. And you nurse it and you nurse it and you convince yourself of anything being okay. And lastly, let God reverse it. 20 years I've been using this. I come to a circumstance like, I don't curse it. I want to curse it. Don't curse it. It's just going to make you bitter. Don't rehearse it. It's just going to make you anxious and worried. Don't nurse it. It's going to be self-pity. It's going to set you up for bad stuff. And trust, dare to risk that God might reverse it. I invite the band to come up, and I'll say one last story. I was in Chattanooga recently. I ran into my friend uh, Mark. Mark was extremely successful. He had a beautiful home. He had jets. He was you know, one of the top 1% of the 1%. And yet he had talked himself into being part of the largest price-fixing scheme in U.S. history. He came home one day, and he told his wife, Ginger, a good friend of mine, and she said, you need to go to the FBI tomorrow and tell them what you're doing. How do you think we provide for this home? How do you provide for our lifestyle? She's like, I don't want a lifestyle. And she, like Esther, risked saying the tough words. He says, you know what, I'll end up in prison. Divorce rate's 90% in prison. She says, if you do this, I will stay faithful with you. He became an informant for the FBI, played by Matt Damon in in the movie. And here's what Mark would tell you, because he's told me many times. I never would have imagined that my greatest tragedy, confessing what I was doing, 
facing the consequences of what I was doing, would show me where my real home was. He says, my wife spent 10 years in prison, I think seven years, six years in prison because of all the visitation she did with me on the weekends. I learned more about my real home. I was exposed to God in a way I never would have heard it before. Chuck Colson, who worked in the prisons at the time, came and told me about a God who could help me even despite the mistakes I've made. And I found my real home in a God. And now what Mark would tell you is his greatest tragedy, is his greatest triumph. Because he found a God who can reverse any and every circumstance to show us where our real home really is. Well, we hope that Horizon can be a place that you can call home, a place that you can investigate and explore. And that's why I get one quick announcement as we leave today is, I had a guy came in, uh, I think it was last week, and, or a couple weeks ago, and said, Chad, I've been coming for a year. I love the church. I said, that's great. Tell me a little bit why. I said, are you aware we have a two-service design? He goes, yeah, traditional and contemporary? I'm like, no, no. We have like four radically contemporary services. I said, but do you know that two of them are 100% different than the other one? Huh? Uh, and I know many of you may have been here for a while, and this series, we've actually taught the same material, though it was a different message, uh, even last hour than this hour. But we go back to our regular format next week. Which means if you've said, hey, I love the music here, but I'd also like to participate in prayer and communion and singing to God and standing up. Um, we do that every week for 20 minutes at our equipping service. Totally different music, totally different message, Saturday at 4.30 and Sunday at 8.50. And so next week we begin our two new series. So if you're interested in praise and worship, prayer, going deeper, digging into books of the Bible like this, we're starting a brand new series. We're going deep into the water. It's called Holy Smokes, They're Studying Leviticus. And we are going to go verse by verse. You're going to learn how to study the Bible. You're going to find the most boring book in the Bible is going to be your favorite book in the Bible in just four weeks. So I invite you to that at our equipping service. Next week at this service, we're getting a brand new series sort of setting up the Easter. If Lent was part of your tradition, it's sort of our version of Lent called, in quotes, words worth dying for. Lastly, if you are interested in not only making Horizon home, but also how to protect your own home, we have got a family seminar tonight that's going to teach us in the world of technology how to protect our homes. I've got a Disney circle I use. We're giving one of those away tonight to teach you how to deal with the temptations and issues in your home, how to set up different uh, technology uh, passwords and filters for kids of different ages. I've got it. It's fantastic. We're going to learn a lot of stuff about that in the next three weeks. So if you're interested in knowing how to handle the technological temptations and management in your life, we'd love to help you with a seminar uh, tonight. Look at your program for that. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week for Holy Smokes and End Quotes. Thanks again.